listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast, recorded in Seoul on Tuesday, March 26, 2019. And today I am joined by retired Lieutenant General John Inbom to talk about the military, the alliance, uh, all those good things. But before that, an announcement. Once again, NK News is offering a free year subscription to one lucky reviewer who reviews our podcast either at iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms. And don't forget, you can also save $50 off your NK News subscription if you use the code podcast at the checkout. And if you enjoy this, please share it with others. All right, my interview guest today, Lieutenant General John N. Baum. He is uh, retired, but he entered the Korea Military Academy in 1977. General John was commissioned an infantry officer in 1981. And he was involved in the Rangoon bombing, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute, and was credited with saving his immediate superior, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General John commanded from platoon to infantry division and was the commander of ROC Special Forces. He has extensive experience with U.S. troops and has served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He received numerous citations to include the U.S. Bronze Star and three Legion of Merits. General John retired from active duty as of July 2016 and was with a visiting, he was a visiting fellow in foreign policy at the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at the Brookings Institute and Johns Hopkins SAIS. He recently returned from the U.S. after finishing yet another fellowship with the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs in Georgia Tech. Thank you and welcome uh, to our podcast. Good morning, Jacko. Good morning. Yesterday, I watched a piece of footage on YouTube of the aftermath of the October 9, 1983 bombing at the Aung San Mausoleum in Burma. Uh, you, of course, were shown in this footage. Uh, and as I mentioned in the introduction, you saved your uh, your superior officer there. So you've had a, a direct first-hand experience of a terrorist act by North Korea. Would you share with our listeners a little bit about what happened that day and what your role was? Well, I was the aide to the Korean chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We had arrived at a uh, ceremony at the mausoleum of Aung San, the national hero of Rangoon. And the North Koreans used their diplomatic privileges to smuggle in explosive devices and explosives, as well as agents into Burma. And uh, they plotted to kill my president. Uh, president Chun at that time was delayed, and the North Korean agents mistakenly thought the uh, practicing bugler was the s signal for the arrival of the Korean president. Uh -huh. And the detonated the device, killing 16 of our 18 official uh, entourage on the spot. And the other gentleman died the next day, and the only survivor was my uh, boss. Five minutes before the explosion, I was right there. I went to the parking lot in order to get some batteries for my uh, camera, wow. and that saved me. Good heavens. So you came back literally just after the explosion and, and saw all this wreckage and... and and mess and human suffering in front of you. Yes. Uh, so, Jocko, I was only 25 years old. Yeah. And I had always, you know, although I was a Korean officer, I, uh, there was a part of me always thinking that the North Koreans can't be that bad, you know. That day, uh, the, initially, the, the Burmese told me that it, could, it, it wasn't, this act could not have been by a Burmese. And I thought, that's, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, who would who who else but a Burmese would do this on Burmese soil? Well, later, two days later, we found out that the North Koreans had done this. Uh, two days later, 
uh, I, I believe it was three of them were caught oh. trying to escape Burma, and one of them committed suicide on the spot, mm -hmm. and they captured, I think, two more. They served 30 years in prison, but the North Koreans nor these men acknowledged that they were North Korean agents, mm -hmm. although you know, all the evidence proved that they were, so you know, they got apprehended. Okay, so let's jump from that, uh, from 1983 to the uh, to the present, from 1950, from the end of the Korean War up until at least the time of the Aung San uh, mausoleum bombing. It was very clear that North Korea formed the biggest existential threat to the security of South Korea and South Korean people. So as such, it was named as the main enemy or uh, Jujok in uh, South Korean defense pa white papers and so on and so forth. Is North Korea still the main enemy today? The reason that the Koreans called them the main enemy was, I believe it was 2010, when the North Koreans threatened to call uh, to turn Seoul into a sea of fire. And because of that kind of uh, war of words, the response from the South Koreans was that we designated the North Koreans as our main enemy. Ah, so that's a recent thing. Well, seven, nine years ago. Uh, in all practicality, why would you designate one nation as your main enemy when, from a security point of view, there can be many uh, threats coming from a lot of areas? So the concept or its usefulness mm. of terming uh, main enemy is it might have been expended. So I, I'm not sure if the if the uh, political usefulness of this term is as valid as it was in 2010. Now, having said that, the mission of the Korean military, as well as all security elements within Korea, is to defend Korea and to secure peace on the Korean Peninsula. So if the if if by designating North Korea as the main enemy serves that purpose, fine. If it's if the cost benefit is 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 outweighed uh, for that cost, then I think you know we can change that. So even having this discussion, I think is is time consuming. Now, well, I, I noticed that that uh, that word or the term main enemy was removed from the latest defense white paper in January of this year. Is that uh basically uh, supporting your argument that the term has outlived its usefulness? Well, I, did I say that it, it's uh, the term has outlasted its usefulness? Nope. I, I, I'm just saying that uh, that's an aspect. Now, mm. uh, I think this present atmosphere that we have, uh, we don't need to uh, antagonize the North Koreans by saying that. What I am not saying is that uh, the South Korean military or its security apparatus mm. should be um, at a lesser uh, readiness. We need to maintain that readiness. Yeah. And if that readiness requires the designation of North Korea as our main enemy, so be it. But do we need to do this right now and, and designate the North Koreans our main enemy to uh, maintain our uh, readiness? Uh, maybe not. So that's that's what I'm saying. I understand. All right, let's talk a bit about um, negotiating uh, with North Korea. Now, last year on the podcast, last summer, in fact, I interviewed retired USFK Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, uh, I believe is a friend of yours. A good friend. And good friend of mine too, luckily. And he uh, explained the idea that negotiating tactics uh, used by North Korea can be summarized by an eight-step loop. And just to remind our listeners at home, I'll 
uh, quickly go through those steps there. So step one, cause the appearance of tension. Step two, blame South Korea and the U.S. for the tense situation. Three, quickly agree in principle to a major improvement in relations. Four, set artificial deadlines to pressure the other side. Five, politicize and draw out negotiations, front-loading the agenda and demanding preconditions, which are often the true objectives. Six, Blame South Korea and the United States for the protracted talks. Seven, demand compensation or a major concession before returning to the talks. And eight, go back to step one. Do you believe that this has ever been the uh, North Korean negotiating strategy? Yes, I believe North Korea really needs to work at that at their sincerity uh, for the future. I think uh, the present situation uh, that we have is because of the actions that North Korea has shown for six decades, which has culminated in a nuclear-armed North Korea. Now, they're justifying this because they say that it's because of uh, external threat that they need to have security. But Mm. in doing so, uh, they've actually highlighted and focus themselves from the international world as a nuclear armed threat. So I think that North Korea, because of all this mistrust, really needs to work on confidence building. So how can we tell if that is still the current uh, negotiating strategy or if they've moved on from it? I'm, I'm, I'm giving the North Koreans the benefit of the doubt. And I really want to believe that North Korea is sincere in their statement about you know, denuclearization. I would really be happy if Kim Jong-un himself came out on TV and said, we will denuclearize. I've heard it from a lot of people who said that they heard it from him, but I've never heard him actually say it in plain words. And that's the first step that I would like to see. I would like to see some more tensions easing measures along the DMZ as well as the Northern Limit Line in the East and West Sea. I would also like to see some more interaction between North and South Korea. And finally, at least some kind of acknowledgement and effort towards North Korean human rights. Why can't he do that? Well, you said that you're prepared to give him, or you are giving him the benefit of the doubt, but is there a point at which you would say, well, I've done that for long enough? I mean, what's for, for you, what's the limit of that? If the North Koreans demonstrate a nuclear device... Uh, I think uh, there will be no turning back. I also believe that some of their actions are in an attempt to drive a wedge between the South Koreans and our closest ally, the United States, which is another bad idea for the North Koreans. I hope it is not true. I think that they need to make sure that There's a lot of baggage uh, from their side that they need to uh, hold back and uh, really make sure that there are no misunderstandings about the efforts to drive a wedge between Korea and the United States and to come out and be more sincere. They have nuclear weapons. They could be more confident. More confident than we're seeing them now, you mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not going to attack them. So why, what's with this all this paranoia? Now, uh, looking at some of the, the protesters we see downtown, not very far from this uh, office, uh, I sometimes see retired South Korean military personnel who are skeptical of or even angry towards President Moon for, uh, as they see it, going too soft on Chairman Kim Jong-un. Now, you're also a retired military man, but you have good relations with the president. What's your take? Is he doing okay with regards to North Korea? If you were the South Korean president... I think uh, the possibility of war on the Korean Peninsula is something that you would want to uh, avoid 
at all costs. And I think that's what Moon is trying to do. I, for one, feel that the first step to achieving this is to have a strong South Korean military. I'm not seeing the things that I wanted to see initially, so I'm still waiting to for more results. He's done uh, two years out of his five-year term, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping for more, more efforts in strengthening the South Korean military. Now, you're a, um, a, well, you have a, a special forces background, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you were uh, in command of the special forces in the Republic of Korea? Yes. Um, uh, I was the commander, and when I was a major, I was a uh, planning officer at the Special Forces, and I also had a short stint when I was a uh, full bird colonel. Mm. Now, do I remember correctly that President Moon, when he served his military service, was also in the Special Forces? Yes, but he did his um, mandatory service as an enlisted person. But he was—he seems to have been a good soldier, took you know orders well, accomplished his job with diligence. Okay, let's talk a bit about the uh, the transfer of wartime operational control, or OPCON, uh, as it's known in the business. For listeners who are unfamiliar, could you tell us how and when Korean military control was ceded to the United States and what has been returned and what hasn't? So in 1950, when the North Koreans conducted a surprise attack on South Korea, the South Koreans fought valiantly with uh, inferior weapons and very uh, small amounts of ammunition. They were able to fight off the North Koreans as best that they could. But the situation was desperate. When the Americans decided to commit to the security of the Korean Peninsula, President Lee Seung-man at that time asked the United Nations to take command of the South Korean forces, which was done during the Korean War. This operational command of the South Korean forces lasted until about the mid-90s. And during the armistice, which is peacetime for your casual listeners, operational control of Korean forces was now retained by the Koreans. When wartime came, the wartime operational control was still uh, given to the United Nations slash United States commander on the Korean Peninsula. There are some relevant facts to this issue. Number one, not all Korean forces are uh, under the operational control of Mm. the U.S. commander. Approximately 75% are under his control. Operational control means the employment of forces. It excludes personnel issues. It excludes intelligence-related, most intelligence-related issues, uh, except for intelligence sharing. It excludes uh, logistics. It excludes uh, money issues, financial, and uh, long-term policy issues. Those things are coordinated with the Koreans. So it's not as if the entire Korean forces are just given to the Americans on a platter, as some might uh, suggest. So, uh, and this only becomes relevant when the Korean and U.S. commander-in-chief, who are the presidents of Korea and the United States, agree that this is required. In other words, when the Korean and United States presidents Mm. declare war. So before that declaration, the U.S. commander has no authority, uh, but he does exercise a lot of influence because of his wartime mission, and uh, we we respect that. And 
uh, the, the listeners need to understand that this is about mutual uh, respect and trust between the Koreans and the United States. Uh, in 2004, I believe, uh, wartime OPCON uh, retainment by the South Koreans became an issue, and it's been delayed a couple of times. It is now conditions-based. The Koreans and the United States is looking at details, whether the conditions uh, are met and when they can be met and what those conditions should be, and uh, the process is going forward. Do you believe that uh, President Moon will see the return of wartime operational control before his term ends in 2022? I asked him not to set a date, and uh, candidate Moon at that time said, you know, he will, he will not do that. But he said that it can't be open-ended, as, as is, was the case in 2017. So I think he, he wants to make the Korean military stronger. Uh, he wants to have a stronger alliance, uh, and he's working towards that. Uh, you said that he wants to make the South Korean military stronger. How prepared is the South Korean military at this stage to repel an invasion by North Korean forces, if there was one? I know that NK News and your podcast is uh, heard from by many interested people on North Korea, ah. including the North Koreans. Oh. So I just want to tell the North Koreans this. We South Korean military might look very weak from your perspective because this is a free country. We don't goose step like you do. And it's not just that we have uh, good tanks and airplanes. Our men and women know how to think for themselves. To your eyes, it looks like disorder, but this is an inner strength that we have. Do not take the South Korean military lightly. So I would say that we are always uh, disadvantaged by the fact that the North Koreans will have the upper hand because they will attack us first. We'll be the ones defending in the initial phases. That's a big disadvantage. But having said that, we're not going to be as weak as the North Koreans think. Now, what about what's happening with conscription in South Korea? I understand that the terms are getting shorter and shorter. Uh, fewer chances to train, more chances to do alternative service now that conscientious objection is, is recognized in South Korea. So about 20 years ago, it used to be 36 months. Now it's gone down to about 20 months. And I believe uh, every month uh, it's going down one day. Mm. And within a couple of years, it will terminate into 18 months. Having said that, conscripted, conscripted troops form about, uh, I want to say, 60 percent of the total force of just over half a million men. So we still have a good number of about 200,000 plus soldiers who serve for more than four and a half years. This is quite a sizable force. Uh, most of them, uh, half of them are Navy and Air Force assets, which is required for the technical and professional uh, level of training that is required for such a technical force. But it still leaves the ground forces, namely the Korean Special Forces mm -hmm. types of people, uh, a good size. There's going to be a requirement for change in how we utilize our conscripts. But the overall readiness, I would say, if done right, will, will be maintained. 
Now, you mentioned earlier um, that there's been a, a, de- a demilitarization of the demilitarized zone. I know that sounds like a tautology. Uh, since late last year, we saw the uh, destruction of some guard posts on both the North and South Korean side and even a, a change in the joint security area. Could you tell us a bit about that and what you think of it? Uh, the comprehensive military agreement is what it's called. So it was agreed last year in September. So basically what they've done is uh, right now they have a four-kilometer wide demilitarized zone. They've extended this four-kilometer into, into 10 kilometers where within the extra six kilometers, no live fire exercises or drills will occur and uh, no large-scale military training will occur. So that's five kilometers on either side of the military demarcation line, is that correct? Yes, uh, to include the original two. So that's one thing. And another thing is the destruction of I believe it's 11 guideposts Mm -hmm. within the DMZ. Now, our listeners probably don't understand this concept. When we say guard post, mm-hmm. it sounds as if, you know, those are your checkpoints on a, on a border. No, these are not checkpoints on a border. The checkpoints on a border for the South Koreans are on the southern boundary. The southern boundary is the tip of the four kilometer DMZ to the south. And in the middle, in the two kilometer, two kilometer middle is the uh, military demarcation line. And the North Koreans to the north, again, would have uh, their border or northern uh, boundary line. Mm-hmm. Within the DMZ are guard posts. The South Korean guard posts are there as a warning system. Uh, this is a tactical defense uh, concept uh, which dates you know, before the Korean War, when we did not have electronics, when we did not have drones. Right. This is a means of uh, using men to go play, to be positioned well into the forward area so that they could provide warning to the main line of defense. The North Korean concept, on the other hand, for GPs is is your checkpoint kind of of a concept where within the DMZ they've created these GPs that we that's what we call them and they formed their national boundary along this uh, these GPs and that's the reason why they have it seems to me that they have three times more uh, GPs than we do. Among these GPs, we selected 11, which are very close, which could be threatening or cause unintentional clashes between the two sides, and we demolish them. So it does not degrade uh, our defenses. It actually degrades the North Koreans because it's guard posts for them. Yeah. For us, it's warning posts warning that post. we call guard posts. Now, do you believe that there are or were tunnels underneath the North Korean guard posts? Well, um, experts believe that the tunnels that uh, are, will be used for infiltration as well as invasion along the DMZ start from the GPs. So I, I have no reason to uh, doubt the experts. How many have been found to date? I believe four were found. Mm-hmm. Now, you would think that with uh, improvements in, in technology that it should be possible to find 
by now, uh, any tunnels that come under the, the southern side of the military demarcation line? Mm, not as easy as you would think. We spend a lot of money trying to find these uh, tunnels, and we have not been successful for the past 20, 30 years. Could that be because they don't exist? <laughs> no. Uh, North Korea is a mountainous terrain. Mm. They have a lot of resources, one of which is coal. And so coal mining and coal mining uh, drills were imported from Europe. A lot of these uh, drills can be used for other purposes. Unfortunately, we believe uh, they use them to uh, to for offensive military purposes. Anyway, uh, I I believe there are many more. Mm. Uh, tunnels. Now, what's changed in the joint security area? Well, the joint security area... Uh, also, some people call it Panmunjom. Right, uh, Panmunjom was divided into uh, north and south, and the North Koreans had authority over the northern area, and the South Koreans had authority of, over the southern area. Mm. That was after the axe murder incident of uh, 1975? Yeah, 77, I think. I'm not sure. Before that axe murder, uh, North Korean and South Korean, as well as UN uh, soldiers uh, or guards, could freely roam that joint security area, mm. whether it's north or south. Then with the axe murder, uh, the north and south, Panmunjom JSA was divided into north and south. What they agreed to was to return to the pre-1977, I need to check the year, but uh, the axe murder incident where all the guards would be unarmed and they would be allowed to uh, to traverse within the JSA. Okay, so no guns anymore in the JSA and uh, North and South Korean soldiers can be on either side. North and South Korean as well as UN soldiers ah. can be uh, on either side. The North Koreans are... Seem to be advocating that it should be a north-south matter, and the UN should not be involved. Which is from the very beginning, the South Koreans said, "Nope, that's not it." And so this is one good example of how North Korea is, you know, seemingly uh, trying to drive a wedge between Korea and the United Nations slash the United States. Right now, I want to come back to the theme, but I want to finish up with the the JSA. Uh, you're probably aware, of course, um, almost every day from Tuesday to Saturday throughout the year, uh, there were uh, tours to the JSA for tourists from uh, almost every country except South Korea, unfortunately, to go in and actually see what the joint security area looks like and to visit the meeting rooms uh, along the, the military demarcation line. And these have all stopped since the uh, since the agreement was enacted last year. So I want to make a correction. The South Koreans also make uh, regular tours of the joint security area slash Panmunjom because it is it really is a visible reminder of the North Korean situation as well as how close Seoul is to North Korea. Uh, and yes, the tours have stopped. Now, my understanding is that the North Koreans are still continuing with their tours on their sector. So I don't understand why we can't do that, because it benefits not only the South Koreans and foreigners on the situation on the Korean Peninsula. All right, now let's get in, back to the uh, the ROC-US alliance or the Chorus alliance. How is it? Uh, you know, North Korea has always been trying to drive a wedge between South Korea and the U.S. Uh, are they having any effect? It seems um, the the relationship is strained. 
No, it's a, this is a healthy relationship. There will always be ups and downs, and uh, we we South Koreans as well as our American friends need to be very careful that you know we should not forget why we're having this discussion. It's to strengthen the alliance, not to break off. So I think uh, although it's strained, the the redundance of the alliance is still strong. What about with the cancelling of some joint military exercises and the scaling down of others? How does that affect you know, the capacity of working together and, and, and uh, readiness? Chaco, I was very sad to see the end of Key Resolve and Full Legal only because uh, during my uh, 38 years of uh, military service, I spent about five years actually uh, being the uh, uh, designer of that exercise oh. as a lieutenant colonel. And then when I was a general officer, I also spent about five, six years participating in various roles in those exercises. Mm-hmm. So it was for me like seeing an era end. The new uh, Meng exercise, exercises, or shall I say, mm-hmm. the, the new series, is looking at scale, scope, timing, and volume. What that means is uh, they're tailoring these uh, combined exercises to the political situation. If the political situation warrants a strong, visible exercise, that's what we'll have. If the political situation requires a more discreet exercise, that's what we'll have. But the main focus should always be readiness. So I believe that the new exercise that replaced Key Resolve and Full Eagle, it it wasn't Key Resolve and Full Eagle, that's for sure. Uh, But it met the circumstances. It met the training objectives. uh, But we're going to need some more exercises. And I'm sure it's coming. And the critical question, are we ready to fight tonight? Well, General Abrams said uh, we are, and I trust the man. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Are all these exercises purely defensive in nature? Yes. North Korea always likes to say, you know, uh, oh, it's a practice for decapitating uh, our state or whatnot. But you say, no. No, uh, it's it's purely defensive. That's one of the things that we South Korean uh, military uh, always uh, tell the Americans that we should be more offensive. But the United States uh, makes sure that it stays defensive. The Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission also mm. uh, takes a cl- close involvement in ensuring that it stays a defensive exercise. And so that's where another important role of the United Nations is played on the Korean Peninsula, uh, where these exercises are purely defensive. And, uh, you know, guys like me have always said that we should invite the North Koreans to look at our exercises and vice versa, that they should allow us to come to North Korea to look at their exercises. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's my understanding that, I don't know about the present, but certainly in the past, that these invitations were extended to the North Korean military. Uh, Do you know anything about that? Well, not in my time, but Mm. as a general officer. But before, there there were instances where we... uh, had invited the North Koreans, and the North Koreans said nothing. Okay, so they never came. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, how how well coordinated is the thinking and planning of the ROC and U.S. militaries at the top levels? Very well coordinated. We sometimes don't agree 100%, yeah. but that's just normal and healthy. Uh, but the coordination, and when I say coordination, I mean, do you understand the intent of the other person? I think it's pretty good. 
Well, let's uh, finish off by talking about the North Korean military. Um, who runs the North Korean military as far as we know? Kim Jong-un. So it, it, he really is uh, the commander-in-chief? He's, in, he's the man in charge? Of course. Just look at the body language of the man, you know. There's... But he has no military experience himself, right? He's never served a day in a, in a unit as far as we know. He is God over there. They don't even, you know, they, 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 it seems to me that they don't even doubt him in their dreams. Uh, the indoctrination is so severe. Now, that doesn't mean that the North Koreans are not human. So they have their they have their doubts, but Kim Jong Un executes, purges uh, men and women, little kids, uh, just to make sure that uh, his his hold on the entire country is firm. And I think that goes for the military uh, number one. Has the North Korean military or its leadership structure changed significantly under Kim Jong-un? Is it different from the Songun or military first period under Kim Jong-il? It seems to me they've become a lot more uh, practical. And it seems Kim Jong-un has put priority uh, along their forces. For instance, we all know that the North Koreans, uh, the si- their physical size is not as uh, tall as the South Koreans. And this is because of malnutrition, right, isn't it? Right. Now, having said that, uh, the average uh, height of a North Korean KPA soldier is 150 centimeters or something. Uh, his uh, elite forces, his, his light infantry, his mm-hmm. special forces, his uh, border patrol troops, their average height is 175 centimeters. So he's done the practical thing. He He knows he can't you know, maintain a large uh, military. So he's concentrated his physically fit uh, soldiers into his his so-called elite units. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be about 200,000 of them. You know, they serve for 13 years, basically. That is a, that, that's the conscription period, is right. it? 13 years. Yeah. That's very long. No wonder their economy is doing so bad. But they use their uh, military for a lot of economic uh, projects. Right. So, we see them in construction. We see them in agriculture. So uh, so it's, it's, it's a, like a state-sponsored labor force that they have. So the North Korean military seems to be focusing on that. Now, they seem to be, have given up on large mechanized units or aircraft just because the aircraft they just don't have the technology and thank god the russians nor the chinese are willing to provide them with a state-of-the-art aircraft but again they're focusing their limited resources on missiles long-range artillery cyber capability electronic capability chemical biological weapons uh they've they've cornered the market on niche capability. Now, you just said that North Korea seems to have given up on uh, large-scale uh, mechanized uh, units. Uh, and we sometimes hear in the media that the North Korean military is so under-resourced that it can't even train effectively because of lack of fuel or bullets or or technicians to repair things. But I remember, was it a year or two ago, there was um, the North Korean media played this footage of uh, a large number of tanks on the beaches and they were firing. Do you remember that? Yes, it wasn't tanks. It was self-propelled artillery. So the North Koreans have a very large artillery force. Uh, it seems they you know, massed all of that and uh, started shooting. From a military point of view, uh, if the enemy did that, that's fine with us because we can just bomb them. Very, it's like putting all your eggs in one basket, you know, just for us to uh, 
the hit the basket. So that would that would be just great. That's what the North Koreans were doing. The comprehensive military agreement. The one signed last September. Yes, uh, makes it a little bit uh, harder for them to do things like that, uh, which is one of the benefits that I see. Now, we've heard over the years that North Korea has literally tens of thousands of artillery tubes along the, uh, well, close to the demilitarized zone, all aimed at Seoul so that in the first few minutes of a, uh, a possible conflict, tens of thousands of well, artillery shells could be lobbed down on Seoul. What's, what do you think the accurate number is? It just seems almost excessive to me to have tens of thousands. Is that real? Because another source said that it may be more like uh, 1,300. I think the uh, 1,300 that source was mentioning is the actual number of artillery tubes, and tens of thousands are the firing from those tubes that could reach Seoul within the first hour or so. It's, it's not that big of an exaggeration. It's a possibility. It's a possibility, okay. But, but we're not just going to be here taking the rounds and just sitting idly. Well, no, I mean, that's that, that's <laughs> that's not the idea, is it? We can't let Seoul be turned into a lake of fire. Apart from the missiles, which branch must the, uh, the ROC-US alliance be most concerned about? Gee, um, if I were to... It, this is strictly personal, right? If I were to have to make a list, uh, cyber would be right on the top of the list. And then, of course, special forces that they have, the light light infantry that they have. You know, it's missiles, uh, number one, long-range artillery included. Mm -hmm. Then it would be the cyber capability. What do we know about North Korea's cyber capability at this stage? Well, we know that uh, they recruit from their entire nation. They're Koreans, so they, they're good at math mm. and computers. So at a very early age, they're recruited in their mid-teens. After a couple of years of training, they're divided into either hackers or um, programmers. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on for decades. And we see these mysterious uh, incidents around the world where 100 million is stolen here. Mm. Another 100 million is missed from some blockchain or not blockchain, but... Uh, some cryptocurrency. Yeah, cryptocurrency. <laughs> and I would probably say that it's you know North Korean. Mm. Now, what do we know about North Korea's special warfare capabilities? Are, are they, uh, you know, would they be able to, in times of war, infiltrate large numbers of soldiers into Korea, into South Korea? Yeah, so there's a lot of debate about that. The thing is, the North Korean special forces still believe in one-way trips. So they're not worried about how they're going to get back. They're worried about getting into the uh, opponent's territory, wreaking havoc, mm. and then, then that's it, you know. Do you believe that there are North Korean sleeper agents or uh, spies in South Korea right now? I'm sure there are sympathizers. Mm, oh, sympathizers, that's yeah, one thing, yeah. That's for but sure. actually having an effective, you know, um, well, first of all, a line of communication, actually having a mission to do something, that's another story, isn't it? We have confirmed testimony from people who have uh, changed sides, stating that they were smuggled into North Korea and then smuggled back into South Korea in the mid-90s. And so I would not, you know, rule that out as a possibility. Now, what about in Gwangju in 1980? That's a controversial topic in South Korea these days yet again. There are some who say uh, in South Korea that Gwangju was, uh, was the, the whole uprising was stoked by uh, North Korean commandos who were there in charge. Do you buy into that? 
I'm not sure. Uh, there's a committee who's trying to find out what the truth and facts is. So I'm going to wait until that committee comes out with its findings. Okay. Uh, last question. What do you hope to see in the next year or two that will convince you that uh, either we're on the right track or the wrong track? I really hope that uh, North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, uh, will come out and express in an undoubted fashion that he is willing to denuclearize North Korea. No ifs and buts about, you know, the Korean Peninsula and all that. Once he's made a public declaration showing his resolve for denuclearization, I am sure that the next step would be step by step. Mm. As this goes on, I am sure that North Korea can be uh, more comfortable with its security situation. That's what I'm hoping to see. Well, let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Thank you once again, Lieutenant General John Inbom, for coming on the NK News podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Don't forget, listeners, you can check all of our episodes and read full bios and show notes on our website, nknews.org. NK News is, of course, the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope you'll buy a subscription there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced, as usual, by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chatter Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free subscription to NK News, so please review us after listening. And save $50 off your subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.